coming to you from the Philadelphia area. This is the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. Well, our message this morning comes to us from the book of Exodus. And I love so much whenever we can read about the Israelites. For 430 years, their identity had been slaves. As the property of Pharaoh, as the brick makers of Egypt, this, this is who they were to the world. This is what their identity was for all of these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, now in the book of Exodus, all of this is beginning to change very drastically. Now they're a bunch of people who used to be slaves, and they thought that was great in this particular moment. I mean, at this juncture, they're not even the Israelites yet. That is a generation in a wilderness away. And yet as we come into Exodus chapter 19 this morning, we see the soon-to-be Israelites, eventually-to-be Israelites, venture into the Sinai wilderness. As Moses ascends and he enters into the presence of God up on a mountain. Exodus chapter 19 and verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord God called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all of the peoples, for all the earth is mine, says the Lord. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so slavery is where they have come from. This, this is all that they ever knew. I mean, just, you know, I want us just to all stop and just imagine for a moment how, how utterly worthless they would have felt. How small and how insignificant they thought that they were because of all of these years of slavery. As all the other nations of the world look at um, at them in this particular moment, they just see a bunch of worthless nobodies who have been destined for this future of meaningless nothingness. And yet notice, though, what's going on in the text, because as God looks at this this exact same group of people, when God sees who they are and who they are in the process of becoming, God says those are, this is who they are, this is their identity, they are my treasured possession. Those are my segula. Segula is the Hebrew word for gold, for a precious treasure and for for a precious jewel of astronomical value something that is so utterly immensely valuable that it's got to be always guarded around the clock 
And so we see what is happening in this transformation of the Israelites, how, how in Egypt they were this exploited and detested possession of a pagan king. And yet in the wilderness that leads to a promised land flowing with milk and honey, God is saying, no, 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 those are my treasured jewels and diamonds in the sight of the living God. And what is the purpose of jewels and of a diamond? It's just a sparkle. It's a glisten. And to captivate whoever gazes upon its beauty. Because it is a big world out there, says the Lord, and all of it is mine. But the problem is, nobody knows who I am yet. It's a big world, but nobody has experienced me yet. And so what God is doing here is he's taking this this whole entire nation of a bunch of, of nobody ex-slaves who are now homeless in this particular moment, and he's filling them and he's infusing them with his knowledge and with his wisdom and with his power and his guidance. You see, what God wants more than anything is for all these other nations one day, for, for a time to come where, where other nations look upon the Israelites, gaze upon a certain splendor that they see and say, here is a nation whose God lives. Their God breathes. Their God has a pulse. They don't worship a God who is a block of wood like, like all of these other nations. No, no, no. Their God is alive. He's powerful over even nature. I mean, have you guys heard about how God rescued and how he overthrew the Egyptian army at the Red Sea? And somehow he just made, you know, magically the water stand up as he brought them into freedom. I have seen this nation, and there is nobody like them on the face of the earth. You've got to see these guys. This is what God wants. And yet somebody might say, well, that was on the other side of the cross in the Old Covenant days, Old Testament times. That's a cool story, but what does that have to do with us? Well, I'm so glad that an imaginary person asked that question this morning in my mind because our answer is in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, we come to this other spectrum of the cross and we find the Apostle Paul writing to, to a small house church in a city called Ephesus. And these are not Jewish people. These are Gentiles just like you and me. And so what he's doing in Ephesians chapter 2 is he is reminding them of their old identity, about who they used to be before they came into contact with the blood of Jesus Christ. So the Apostle Paul reminds them in verse 1 and says that at that point you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. In that way in which you had formerly walked according to the prince of the power that is of the sons of disobedience. He says in verse 2 that, that among them you all formerly once lived in the lust of your flesh, and you were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. Yet then in verse 4, Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, worthless nobodies, made us alive together in Christ. And I especially want to emphasize verses 8 through 10 where he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God so that no one is able to ever boast in their own selves. 
And yet especially look at verse 10 where, where he says, okay, this is who you once were. Now this is who you are, O Christian. For you are. This is who you are. This is what your identity now is in Jesus. For we are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared in advance even before there was a world that we should walk in them. And so this is who we used to be. This is our Egypt right here. It is the slavery of sin. You were dead in your sins. Us Gentiles, we were separated from Christ as he goes on and he says later, we were excluded from God's covenant that he gave to Israel. We were separated from Christ being without hope and without God in the world. In the eyes of ancient Palestine, we were just a bunch of dead, worthless, nobody Gentiles who were destined for a future of meaningless nothingness. That's who we were in the eyes of the religious world. And yet as Jesus looks at us, though, us Gentiles even of all people, and when Jesus looks at us this morning and he sees who we are now in the process of now becoming because of him, what Jesus says is, no, those are not worthless nobodies. Those are my treasured possession. They are my poema. That is a Greek word for something that is made. It means a work of art. Or as I would like to express it, it is a masterpiece that's, that an artist has just made. You see, sometimes the world, sometimes the evil one. Sometimes tragedy and circumstance works to convince us that we are lesser than, that we are worthless and insignificant, and that we are hopeless to escape our past of who we used to be. Again, in the eyes of the creator of the universe, in the eyes of the one who every morning he paints the skies, he says, no, those are my treasured masterpieces. Notice in Ephesians, it says that we are his workmanships. We are his masterpiece works of art. Created for, Paul says, put on the planet to do good works, which God had in mind for us to do in 2021 before there was even a world that was created. This is our identity in Jesus Christ. This is who we are by God's Holy Spirit. Now, it has been beautifully and accurately explained to us before in many places that, that the church is just a hospital. And we can almost imagine what is going on in just about any major hospital right now in the world where I imagine that there is chaos in the intensive care unit. There's all these people being wheeled in stretchers and it's just pandemonium. There's groaning and there is agony and pain. Upstairs, there are many people receiving open-heart surgery, perhaps. On the other end of the hall, there might even be a few people who are on respirators who are suffocating from COVID-19. Maybe downstairs, there's a few people who have cancer who are being treated. On other floors, there might be others who have more ancillary infirmities, but regardless of who we are or where we're coming from in the church, we're all sick. We are all trying to get well. 
We're all trying to recover from our illnesses. So yes, the church is a hospital where sick people go to get well, but what we see in Ephesians as well as in in Exodus is that the church is also a very vibrant art gallery. For a God who has seen us at our absolute worst, who knows everything that we have ever done and, and every dark and depraved thought that we all have entertained before, we would expect God to recoil at the very mention of our name. Maybe to hide his face from even our shadows. But no, when God looks upon us, he doesn't see sin. He doesn't see who we used to be before we knew anything about him. He doesn't see our most unforgivable moments that we have ever lived out in the world. But rather, he sees Ruth. And as he sees Ruth, it's, you know, we see God looking at Ruth just as people gaze upon the Mona Lisa at the Louvre in Paris. He looks at Bob Thompson and it's as if he is standing at the Van Gogh Starry Night exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art. As Christine Steininger prays to God late in the evening, God savors God, hangs on her every word as if it is, is a spectator who is listening to a rendition of Shakespeare's Macbeth at Royal Albert Hall in London. When we sing his praises, and guys like me go way off key sometimes, and they get the melody wrong, and they're not a good singer by any stretch of the human imagination, but they're praising God from the depths of their soul. God hears that, and it's, it's as if he's listening to Mozart's Serenade Number 13, or Toccata in D Major, or Vivaldi's Four Seasons, and he hears a symphony, and he hears a masterpiece. But more than anything else, when we live the Jesus way in this dark, deteriorating, broken world that is growing more hostile by the moment, the art of Jesus is being made all over the place. There are some of us who are sculptures. Others of us are a painting. Some of us are sheet music or literature, but we are all his new creations. We are all his cherished treasured masterpieces of Jesus Christ. This is who we are. This is our identity. This is who we are in the process more and more and more by the day of becoming more and more. And yet, though, we must never forget how spiritual masterpieces come to be made, though. And that's because we only become his new creations when we treasure his ways in remembrance. Now, if we could go back to what God is saying to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 19, God knows. I mean, God, God understands that, that with all of this newfound independence, so often comes amnesia of just how exactly we got there. It is so easy to forget just who exactly saved who sometimes. It is so natural for us to forget where we have come from and now where God is bringing us. So God is reminding them. We hear God say in verse 4 of Exodus 19 that, that you have seen what I did to those Egyptians. You remember how I bore you up on eagles' wings to myself. And I, I just love that as an analogy where God likens his nation, his people, to this nest of little baby eaglets. 
and their eyes are barely open to the world. They're exposed to all kinds of, of elements and perils and dangers in the world, but at just the right time, God, their protector, swoops in just like a mother eagle would do and scoops all of her eaglets under the shadow of her wings and she hits the sky and she takes them far away to freedom and to safety. And as, as that eagle is soaring into the clouds, it's as if all of these little baby eagles are the ones who are flying, but really they're just on their mother's wing. Verse 5, God says, obey my voice and keep my covenant. If you will live in such a way where you obey my voice and if you keep my, my covenant, he says, you're going to be my treasured gold. You're going to be my jewels and diamonds in this world. You see, God is just about to reveal his Ten Commandments to his, his nation up there on the mountain. Moses is going to come down with it. But what God wants one day is for all of these people to treasure and to hide those commands of his in such a way that they are etched upon their, their souls and on their hearts. What God wants is that we be just like David as he writes in the book of Psalm, that, that the laws of the Lord are my gold. How the words that, that come out of the mouth of the holy God, that is more desirable than, than all of the money in the world. And so God is saying to his people, remember your slavery in Egypt. Remember your liberation at the Red Sea. Remember where you're walking in this wilderness someday because I am making you something so much greater and beautiful, you see. This is why Paul says, by the way, how, how this is not our own doing. Or in other words, we, we are not the artists of these masterpieces that have been made in the church. God is the artist. God the Father is the one who holds the brush. Jesus Christ is the one who holds the brush. God's Holy Spirit is, is the true artist at work. And when we let go of our American bootstrap method of I accept no help from anybody else except for my own self, and we genuflect before the cross and the empty tomb and say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I need you to rescue me. Jesus, I will live all the rest of my days savoring your words. This and only this is when sublime spiritual arts begins to take form within us. You see, this is when these Israelites go from, from being an embittered nation of slaves to someday, if they are willing, being an, a um, holy nation of priests, God says. We spoke about this last week at our um, song and prayer service about how as we are singing holy, 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 God is looking right back at us and he's saying, holy, holy, holy. That's because we are resembling him. It's as if he's looking into a mirror as he looks at his people. Did you know that in Genesis chapter 1, by the way, as God says, let us make man in our image, and it says how we were made in the image of God, that word image in the Hebrew, it means, well, it means a likeness, it means a phantom, but it also means um, a statue. 
We are the statues. We, we resemble our creator and our architect God. We are his living statues. And what I love most about this creator, though, is, is how his, his most greatest masterpieces come from the most unexpected of places, don't they? It was 1464 in Florence, Italy, and a statue of King David was commissioned to have been made by a local artist. Well, well, the only problem was, though, that nobody wanted to make this statue of King David. There were multiple artists who began working on it, but who immediately abandoned working on it. One of the reasons that history says that that happened is because it was insufficient marble. It was a very poor quality of stone that they had been given, had all kinds of flaws. And so they said, no, I'm a perfectionist, so I'm not going to do anything with that. So for more than a quarter of a century, the statue of King David remained this, this messy, unfinished project without a sculptor. Until at last, finally, in the summer of 1501, there was this new up-and-coming artist. Perhaps you, you may have heard of him. His name is Michelangelo. He set his hands to it. Michelangelo took those flawed pieces of stone and marble that, that no other artist would go anywhere near, and he used that flawed stone to make King David's. I mean, it is an absolute masterpiece of Renaissance art. It is, it is by far and away the most famous sculpture in the world. It is, it is by far and away the most famous sculpture that will ever be made upon the face of the earth. And yet if marble had the ability to speak, it would be breathtaking arrogance for that statue of King David to say, everybody gather around, worship me. Bow down before my, my muscles and my biceps. Everybody look at how great and superior I am to all of the other people in the world. I am King David. And yet that's exactly what it's like when we see a Christian who is arrogant, who is self-righteous, who condemns all these other people who don't know him to hell, left and right. We would respond to that statue and say, you didn't create yourself. God had to come in and rescue you just like everybody else. And yet when the master got his hands on you, this and only this is when you became a masterpiece of art. So we've got to be humble and to remember where we've come from. And yet I am the polar opposite of that extreme. I think I, I had an even worse, worse extreme than even that where, and maybe you can even relate to this a little bit, or it would be just as absurd if that statue of King David were, were lying in that museum saying, I'm nothing but flawed marble. All those other artists didn't want to do anything with me. They, they went and they, they made other sculptures. They didn't want to build me. I guess I'm just worthless because all these other artists didn't want to create me. I'm just discarded stone that is inferior. Every last one of us would stand in front of that statue and say, you're David. You are a masterpiece of art. What are, what are you talking about? Everybody knows who you are. People come from all over the world just to stand in front of you and take a picture of you. 
And so no, we must never forget who we are in Jesus and not think too lowly of ourselves as I once thought. And I love that analogy because the name of that statue is my name, it's David. So it gets really, really direct for me and it helps me. And yet really though, what we are this morning, even though we are masterpieces, we are um, a work in, in progress, what we are this morning is clay in the hands of a potter. I'm not going to go there, but in Jeremiah chapter 18, as we bring all this to a close this morning, God is portrayed to us as a master potter who is sitting at a pottery wheel. Israel is portrayed as this marred lump of clay in his hands. As God always has and always will, God has big and beautiful plans for Israel, but... He can only do those things if they treasure his ways and they remember where they've come from. And yet notice how I said just a second ago how we are clay in the hands of a potter. And that's because God is not the only creator out there, is he? See, every single one of us is pliable. And every single person on the face of this earth is being formed and sculpted by someone or by something. And when we break it all down, it is either one or two artists. It's either light or it's darkness. It's either the spirit or it's the flesh. It's either the things above or it is the things which are below. But we are being sculpted by someone. Well, as we know, more times than not, the Israelites chose the things which are below. Not very long after Exodus 19, we find Moses, as, as he comes down from Mount Sinai, he's got the stone tablets in his hands, but he sees the Israelites worshiping a golden calf. He hears them saying, this is the God who delivered us out of Egyptian slavery. Moses is like, wait a minute, what? They look like all the other nations of the world. They, they are not a jewel shining for God in the world. And it is Israel's love affair with, with idolatry and later on in corruption and injustice that is what sends them into captivity many times over. And yet we can hear the words, though, of God echoing forward to them as well as to us this morning. As God says, remember when I saved you at the Red Sea. Remember when I brought you up out of the waters of your baptism and you were ready to set the world on fire for Jesus Christ. Remember how I bore you up on eagles' wings and I flew you far away to salvation and to freedom. And yet many centuries later, Jesus is speaking to this exact same group of people in first century Palestine. And what he says is, is oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You stone all of the prophets who I sent to you. You kill all of the messengers who, who had prophesied. And then Jesus used a similar language as he says, how often I wanted to, to hide you under the shadow of my wing as a mother hen brings her young to her care. But Jesus says, you were not willing. And the concerning thing is sometimes I'm not willing. Sometimes we are not willing, and sometimes we also mar in the hands of our potter, Lord God. 
And yet his promise and his patience remains for us forevermore. If you will live your lives in such a way that you obey my voice and keep my covenant. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. If you will obey my voice and keep covenant with me. You're going to be a holy nation. You're going to be a treasured masterpiece of mine in the sight of all these other people who are hurting and who don't know me. And so we step out of the potter's house into the field just beyond his workshop. And as we're walking along, we, we begin to hear the sound of, of, of all of these broken fragments crushing underneath our shoes. You see, these bits and pieces that we are stepping on and destroying underneath our feet, these are the fragments of vessels that could have been, that should have been, but never were. It's people who had spiritual gifts, but who became afraid and who hid them in the earth. It's people who wanted to follow Jesus, but when they looked at all of their materialistic possessions said, I'm going to walk away slowly away from Jesus. It's people who Jesus's arm was extended to, but said, "Ah, I don't need you, Jesus. I'm just going to depend on me. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a fragment of what might have been. I want to be a masterpiece sculpture of Jesus Christ. I want to be his holy priest. I want to be among his holy nation in this world. I want to be a treasured possession masterpiece of the divine. And so what we've got to do in the days ahead as we rise up and as we lie back down is very simple. Is that as it says in Exodus, it says these are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And in the same way, my, my brothers and sisters, these are the words that, that we shall speak to ourselves and to one another by way of remembrance that we, we believe and that we remember where we've come from and that we are his treasured masterpieces. And I just want to close this morning with the words of Myra Brooks Welch, who is a poet, who wrote this, it's called the um, a touch of the master's hand from 1921. She says, "'Twas scarred and had been battered, and the auctioneer thought it hardly worth his while to waste his time on this old violin, and yet he held it up with a smile. What am I bid, good people, he cried. Who starts the bidding for me? One dollar? One dollar, do I hear two? Two dollars, and who makes it three? Three dollars once, three twice. Three dollars going, gone for three. But no. From the room far back, a gray-bearded man came forward, and he picked up the bow. Then wiping the dust from the old violin and tightening up the strings, he played a melody pure and sweet, as sweet as the angel sings. As the music ceased, the auctioneer, with a voice that was quiet and low, said, What am I now bid for this old violin? As he held it aloft with its bow. One million, one million, and do I hear two? Two million, and who will make it three? Three million once, three million twice, three million going and gone, said he. The audience cheered, but some of them cried. We just don't understand. What changed its worth? 
Swift came the reply. It was the touch of the master's hand. And many a man with life out of tune, all battered and bruised with hardship, is auctioned sheep to a thoughtless crowd, much like that old violin. A mess of pottage, a glass of wine, a game, and he travels on. He's going once, he's going twice, he is going, and, and he's almost gone. But the master comes and the foolish crowd never can quite understand the worth of a soul and the change that is wrought by the touch of the master's hand. And this is who we are, my friends. We are old violins who the master artist picks up and brings to life. And he plays the melodies of heaven. 